Welcome and thank you for standing by at this time. All participants are in a listen-only mode. During our Q&A session, you may press star 1 on your touchtone phone if you would like to ask a question. Please, when you ask a question, give us your name and affiliation. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. Now I'd like to turn the meeting over to the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Ma'am, you may begin. Uh, thank you, Operator, um, and good afternoon And in the, in the United States or on the east coast of the United States, and welcome to those, uh, whatever time zone you're in, uh, joining from um, other parts of the United States and around the world. Thanks for turning, tuning in to the Wilson Center's 154th Ground Truth Briefing. Despite the tor- turmoil of the past months, the Wilson Center team has kept churning out unmatched programming and insight. It seems we've analyzed COVID-19 from just about every angle. We've had events on how every region has responded, from China to North Korea, Europe to North America, and Latin America to Africa. These regional discussions are the reason we have been named number one think tank in the world for regional studies for three years. But there's one thing we haven't yet covered in a public event, and it's the simplest question we could ask about this pandemic, and that is, the question we're asking today. How did all this happen in the first place? And we're asking this today from a scientific, environmental, public health and public health perspective. How did the disease arise and spread so quickly? Uh, and I just throw in here, I know one of our panelists will address it, that there are theories, they are at yet as yet unproven, that a biolab that was nearby the wet market in uh, Wuhan uh, might have had something to do with this. So hopefully we'll address that because I'm sure that some of the listeners would like to know what we think about this. Our experts at the Environmental Change and Security Program, ECSP, have some answers, um, which, which are that this pandemic does not come as a surprise to epidemiologists and national security experts. Rapid rapid urbanization, population growth, and environmental change are some factors which have amplified the threat of animal-borne infectious diseases. And again, uh, we'll address that that issue as well. Surprise or no surprise, the coronavirus pandemic only reiterates uh, what experts at ECSP have been saying for decades. We need to go beyond our traditionally narrow view of what constitutes a national security threat. Otherwise, we're going to miss the alarms that our intelligence experts have been trying to sound for decades. In 2008, the National Intelligence Council's Global Threats 2025 report warned of the potential for a pandemic that sounded eerily similar uh, to how COVID-19 probably spread. So let's uh, discuss how we got here and uh, see what we can do. Let's hope to mitigate the next pandemic. And let's also discuss the intersection between environment, society, and national security. Uh, Joining us are Ellen Carlin at uh, the Georgetown Center for Global Health Science and Security, Sharon uh, Guynup, journalist and Wilson Center Fellow, and Roy Schoonover, Schoonover, the former director of the Environment and Natural Resources, uh, uh, the former director of Environment and Natural Resources on the National Intelligence Council, also called the NIC. Moderating our discussion is Lauren Herzerizzi, the the talented project director of our ECSB program. Thank you, uh, Lauren, and to your team for your hard work and great programming. 
including this exciting discussion. So now over to you, Lauren. Thank you, Jane, for that excellent introduction to today's conversation. As Jane mentioned, my name is Lauren Reese, and I direct the Environmental Change and Security Program. Thank you all for being on the call today, together with my colleagues in the China Environment Forum and Science and Technology Innovation Program. We're so pleased to bring you a top-notch lineup of speakers. I encourage you to have your questions ready. To get in the queue to share those questions, please dial star one. You know, a former colleague at the Wilson Center once told me that after sitting through 15 years worth of Wilson Center panels, the first event she attended still stood out as the one that frightened her most. It was on the potential impact of a global pandemic, not unlike what we're experiencing today. As shocking as the COVID-19 headlines have been and continue to be, as Jane said, there are experts who have been for many years trying to sound the alarm. And in fact, there have been clear signals of the risks posed by animal to human virus transmission. Ebola, H1N1, SARS, MERS, and even HIV all originated in animals. So that begs the question, now that the alarm has sounded so loudly it can't be ignored, what are the underlying drivers of risk that created the conditions for COVID-19 to emerge, and how do we better address them? One thing that I think will come out in the next hour is that when we talk about drivers of risk, we're not just talking about wet markets, our increasingly connected world, or even public health. Before the coronavirus, climate change was already beginning to change the ways we live, work, and think about our future. New fields of study like planetary health and approaches like One Health have developed to better understand and address the connections between ecosystem and human health. The program that I direct has its roots in environmental security, which recognizes the role that the environment and natural resources can play in exacerbating conflict or facilitating peace. So how do we take the lessons from these fields and others and better institutionalize them in our governing structures to help drive anticipatory decision-making that at a minimum helps us better prepare for the next crisis? Before we turn to our speakers, another quick reminder to press star one to get in the queue for questions. We have a couple hundred listeners on the call, so thank you in advance for your patience as we get to as many questions as possible. So first we're gonna hear from Sharon. Sharon Gynup is a journalist and author, a National Geographic Explorer, and a Wilson Center Global Fellow. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Geographic, Scientific American, and Smithsonian, as well as our own new security beat covering wildlife, ecosystems, energy, and climate change. For the last several years, much of her work has delved into poaching and wildlife crime. And if you've been following any of the press around Tiger King, you've no doubt seen her name. And I urge you to read her December 2019 National Geographic article on captive tigers in the U.S. Sharon, over to you. Thank you, Lauren, for the kind introduction. And I, too, would like to thank you all for joining us today. I'm calling in from the New York metropolitan area, which is the nation's COVID-19 epicenter. You may hear ambulances screaming by during today's call, headed for the hospital down the street. It's my constant reminder of the local, national, and global battle we're fighting against this virus. My colleagues will detail information about this coronavirus and other zoonotic diseases, the diseases that jump between animals and humans. But I would like to provide an overview for this issue. The current pandemic has brought our relationship with wildlife and nature into sharp focus, and along with it, the renewed realization that human health relies on the health of the planet. An estimated 70% of new human infectious disease outbreaks come from pathogens that originated in animals. Increasingly, diseases are moving between people, livestock, and wildlife, 
creating concerns about food safety, wildlife conservation, and especially now public health. As Lauren mentioned, these include HIV AIDS, Ebola, swine flu, avian flu, and two other coronaviruses, SARS and MERS. Since the mid 20th century, new and deadly diseases have emerged at an alarming rate with more than 335 emerging infectious disease outbreaks reported worldwide. Because this new coronavirus may have originated in a seafood and wildlife market in Wuhan, China, it has centered particular attention on the trade and consumption of wild species. For decades, we have heard dire warnings from epidemiologists and infectious disease experts that markets like the one in Wuhan are dangerous breeding grounds for the next pandemic. These markets are microbial petri dishes. Wild animals are shipped from around the world and then jammed together in filthy cramped cages. Bats, chickens, civet cats, birds, pangolins, and a host of other species. Many are weakened or sick from traumatic capture and transport. Some markets butcher them on site. And in such close proximity, these animals exchange pathogens that can evolve gaining the ability to jump into new vulnerable hosts that lack natural immunity to them, and that includes humans. Nearly all zoonotic diseases originate in either mammal or bird hosts. It's important to note that these markets are not unique to China. They're found across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Wildlife is bought and sold in every country on Earth. It's consumed as wild meat, ingredients in traditional medicines, and bought as pets and other products. China is the largest consumer, but few people realize that the United States ranks second, although the volume is far less and the uses are quite different. Illegal wildlife trade generates up to $23 billion a year, excluding illegal fishing, and now ranks <clears throat> excuse me, as the world's fourth largest source of criminal earnings. The perpetrators are transnational crime syndicates and military groups, which has elevated this trade to a national security issue. Global trends indicate that new microbial threats will continue to emerge at an unprecedented accelerating rate. And while wildlife trade is a significant factor, it's not the only one. With 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet, we're intruding ever further into the world's last wild places. The science is clear that the loss and fragmentation of wildlife habitat is a major factor in the spread of zoonotic disease, bringing humans, their livestock, pets, and urban populations in closer contact with wild animals and with the viruses they carry. And COVID-19 illustrates how quickly an outbreak can spread via international travel and trade. Overall, global COVID-19 infections continue to rise along with the death toll. There are also very serious economic impacts. In April, the International Monetary Fund's World Economic Outlook concluded that the global economy would experience, quote, its worst recession since the Great Depression, unquote, surpassing that seen during the global financial crisis a decade ago. But there are many unknowns. A lot depends on the epidemiology of the virus, the effectiveness of shelter-at-home measures, the development of effective treatments, and whether a vaccine can be produced that will provide immunity. The ultimate human and economic toll cannot be predicted. Given the deep interconnectedness of our world, this coronavirus will not be the last outbreak. 
and we now have a choice. We can recognize that we are vulnerable to emerging viral threats, or we can choose to ignore recommendations for decision-making and investments that will prevent or help us to respond to new threats. The pandemic has led to renewed calls from the global community for an outright ban on the consumption of wild animals. It has also placed China's wildlife trade policies under intense international scrutiny. The Chinese government shut down its wildlife markets in 2002 during the SARS epidemic. However, the markets reopened when the crisis passed. This past February, in response to COVID-19, the National People's Congress of China closed wildlife markets, passed a ban on consumption of terrestrial wildlife as food, and clamped down on trade. But since then, Chinese lawmakers and academics have begun campaigning to exclude 54 wild species that are farmed for human consumption in captive breeding facilities, including tigers, bears, bushmeat species, such as civets, bamboo rats, and many others. Um, civets um, are thought to have been uh, a host species for uh, SARS. Experts note that it is crucial that China uphold current, current bans and extend them to include traditional medicine and ornamental items. Any wild species may carry bad actor pathogens, whether they're legally traded or sold on the black market. China's actions will have an enormous ripple effect on the policies of neighboring countries that are both consumers and active trade hubs, including Vietnam and Thailand. However, since wildlife trade is a global issue, it requires a global effort. Countries must develop and adopt multi-pronged approaches that include strengthening policy and enforcement at national levels, raising public awareness, promoting community involvement, and changing consumer behavior. The illegal trade has gained increasing attention from key UN agencies and international enforcement entities, including Interpol. An effective fight against wildlife trafficking will require their continued commitment. It's also been suggested that the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, be amended to incorporate health risks. The CITES Treaty, with 183 signatories, regulates trade in wildlife and plants according to conservation status, but it does not address enforcement. There is currently no global legal agreement on wildlife crime, leaving a need for enforcement to be embedded within international frameworks. We will also need a much deeper knowledge of the threats. Experts say that this will, in turn, help us better predict, prevent, and respond to future outbreaks and save countless lives. It will cost billions of dollars. One proposed scientific collaboration is the Global Virome Project. It would, within a decade, identify and provide detailed knowledge of the viruses that could cause the next outbreak. Researchers estimate that mammal and birds may carry 1.6 million viruses and some 700,000 could present a risk to human health. Another initiative, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, has already raised hundreds of millions of dollars to develop vaccine pipelines for emerging infectious diseases. In the last weeks, the U.S. made an important step by dramatically increasing funding to the U.S. Agency for International Development's Global Health Bureau. 
This may revive USAID's defunct PREDICT program that had been established to identify and combat viruses that could generate global public health emergencies. Our well-being is inextricably linked with that of the planet's web of life. In fact, one could argue that the state of the world can be measured by the state of the wild. Perhaps this current pandemic will serve as a clarion call that we are vulnerable to emerging viral threats. Human health, animal health, and ecosystem health are inextricably linked, and protecting nature protects humanity. Ecosystems act as huge carbon vaults, mitigate extreme weather, and provide buffers from flooding. They provide wood, nurture pollinators, and provide wood. They clean the air and purify drinking water for billions of people. And keeping them intact could prevent the next pandemic, which is just a plane flight away. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Ellen Carlin. Dr. Carlin is a veterinarian with expertise on zoonoses, emerging infectious disease epidemiology and policy, and U.S. biodefense policy. She is an assistant research professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology in Georgetown University's Center for Global Health and Security and director of the graduate program in global infectious disease. Up until a few months ago, Dr. Carlin served as senior health and policy specialist at EcoHealth Alliance. She also has extensive experience on the Hill, where she was senior professional staff with the House of Representatives Committee on Homeland Security. Ellen, over to you. Lauren, thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you so much for convening this really important discussion today. So I, I guess I wanted to start by mentioning the victims of COVID-19. I, I think it's a good way to put what we're talking about in context. There are, of course, the, the human victims, those who are infected globally, according to the Johns Hopkins tracker, which I'm looking at right now, it's 2.4 million confirmed cases um, with the, the U.S. leading at 759,000. So these are all of the people infected are victims and their families and their friends and the businesses that rely on them to operate are victims. And there are also the animal victims. You know, there are, Sharon gave a really nice introduction to the wildlife trade. And there's an awful lot of discussion about wildlife trade bans. Um, and we can maybe talk about that during the Q&A, where I think we'll get into some of the policy implications of what's been going on. But I think that it's, it's easy to think that wildlife will benefit if trade bans go into effect. But, um, you know, these wet markets are actually likely to go underground if they are banned, and animal welfare could get even worse. We also know that poaching is increasing in some countries, such as in Africa, um, as tourism revenue declines and local people need money to support their livelihoods and there's less money for security for these animals. And last but not least, bats largely get demonized in this discussion and there's really nothing um, negative that I can possibly say about bats. They are such important providers of ecosystem services, and they are the largest mammalian group on the planet. There's also a lot of confusion and misinformation about where COVID-19 came from. Many comments to me are about how, boy, people really need to stop eating bats, huh? 
So we don't we don't know that this happened because someone ate a bat. In fact, I wouldn't think it, that was likely. We don't even know that it came from the Wuhan market that's been in the news for several months now as the likely source. It is certainly very likely that this virus moved from its origins in a bat, perhaps through an intermediary animal, which may have been consumed for food or may have been handled or may have been used medicinally. That is a a possible route of transmission. There's also a story circulating now that this could have resulted from an accidental release from a laboratory, a major virology laboratory in Wuhan, which was um, studying coronaviruses from bats. And laboratory accidents are certainly among the triad of potential origins that we think about as being the source of any outbreak, that being um, nature, human beings um, through terrorism or biocrimes, and laboratories. I think what I want to spend the next few minutes remarking on is that COVID-19 is is much bigger than the problem with wildlife trade. I think wildlife trade is a piece of what we are reckoning with right now. Um, COVID-19 is really giving us a, a chance to finally reckon in a really public way with the many drivers that are pushing infections out of the forest, out of animal hosts, out of insect vectors, and into other animals or people that, that haven't and, previously uh, been exposed to them. Known as the COVID getting a bit of feedback. We have to yeah. selection. If this is correct, press one. Somebody seems to be off mute. If you could off mute your lines. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Ellen. Sure. So just talking about the drivers, I think, you know, we need to be very, very clear that this is a human-made problem, a humanity-made problem. This is not a China-made problem. It's not a bat-made problem. It's really all of us collectively making decisions about the way that we live. It's not just about consumption of wildlife, although bushmeat is certainly a risk factor. But the acceleration of the emergence of infectious diseases in the last several decades has everything to do with human behavior. We are constantly increasing the human interface with nature as we push into forests that once separated us from the animals that live in them. We're talking about land use change on massive scales, mass urbanization and demographic shifts agricultural intensification, climate change, disruption of ecological systems on tremendous scale, areas like the extractive industry, the growth in palm oil plantations, the development of bigger and bigger cities, the development of suburbs. These are the ways in which the the growing global desire for certain commodities and to live a certain way puts pressure on ecosystems and creates really unnatural interfaces. And we can see it here at home. You know, when you, we don't even really think very much about Lyme disease as an emerging infectious disease anymore, but it was once not that long ago. 30,000 cases of Lyme are reported in the U.S. every year. That was a pathogen that, as far as we know, had kept itself to forests until well-meaning suburban developments created this lush interface of grasses at the forest edge, which attracts deer 
and put them in very close proximity to people, which hadn't been the case before. So you set up a risk factor for Lyme in that way. You know, similarly, wet markets aren't new. They've been around a very long time. But the human desire for a globalized world means we've created dense factory cities, Wuhan, like many cities in China, supply the commodities that we Americans and many others are looking for. So you set up these dense cities, physical pathways through which viruses can travel out of these traditional markets, which have been around for centuries and around the globe in 24 hours. So understanding the drivers and the risk pathways is really important. If you take a shot at the drivers, you get a shot at prevention. We're hearing a lot about the lack of intelligence awareness that went into this epidemic and pandemic, our lack of preparedness for it. And those are both critical, but we're hearing very little about prevention, really outside of the commentators who talk about shutting down wet markets. This is way bigger than wet markets, and complex problems demand complex solutions. So all of this could be mitigated if we extracted less, clear-cut less, traveled less. Then you'd have, you know, an outbreak that might happen in one place, but it would stay there. I don't think it's realistic to think that everyone just stops traveling. That cat has been out of the bag for about 500 years. Um, but there may be other things that we can do um, to start changing our habits and the habits of people in other countries as well. And I'll, I'll leave with some thoughts about why these dynamics make emerging in such a disease a public health security issue and indeed a national security issue. You have localized epidemics that can rapidly translate into globalized pandemics. This one is causing massive economic upset in line with the Great Depression. And it's completely upended our ability to deal with other health threats that are still occurring. All of the other health problems that we have haven't gone away. It's also made us unbelievably vulnerable to an intentional act that could be perpetrated at the same time. Uh, you know, we, I, I am very worried that the de depletion of supplies and other resources could put us at significant vulnerability if someone deliberately wanted to hurt us right now. So I'll, I'll kind of close with the, the idea that the securitization of public health, to my mind, really started after the anthrax attacks of 2001. And after a few years of enthusiasm, it became hard to maintain that traction once the sense of the immediate threat was gone. Um, hopefully we understand that that threat is immediate and still here. Emerging infectious diseases are here and they are here to stay as long as the drivers are here. And hopefully we can get some traction now, really thinking about emerging infectious diseases being adequately integrated into the national security construct. That's it for me, over. Thank you, Ellen. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Rod Schoonover, who is founder and principal of Ecological Futures Group and adjunct professor at Georgetown University. He spent a decade in senior roles in the U.S. intelligence community, both at the National Intelligence Council and the State Department. Dr. Schoonover is widely recognized for helping to elevate and establish ecological and environmental issues within the national security framework 
of the United States. Uh, Rod, real quick before we um, get to you, let me do a quick reminder that if you are listening and would like to get in queue to ask a question, please press star one on your phone and uh, we'll get to the Q&A after Dr. Schoonover. Over to you, Rod. Great. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you, uh, Lauren, and thanks to the Wilson Center for having me on today. Uh, This is a critically important discussion to have right now, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. The comments from Sharon and Ellen already have been outstanding. And thanks to those who have tuned in this afternoon. So I'll just say my comments today come primarily from a national security perspective. Um, The United States has a massive national security apparatus, by far the largest in the world, with a gigantic budget. And the Department of Defense budget is in the ballpark of $700 billion annually. And there are the comparatively smaller but sizable budgets of the intelligence community, departments of state, energy, et cetera. But the national security budget should be large because national security is the government's most important role, especially the protection of its citizens at home and abroad. Unfortunately, U.S. national security is outdated and needs to be recalibrated, I think, to reflect the threats that the country faces. So almost 3,000 people died in the September 11 attacks, most of them Americans, which led to a huge shift, some might even say radical, uh, in our national security institutions. And counterterrorism became a dominant focus of government, in addition to two costly wars. As of this morning, almost 36,000 people have died from COVID-19 in the United States, already more than 10 times that from 9-11, and this number will surely grow. And the accompanying economic harm will be just as dramatic. And there's also been a return in U.S. national security circles to so-called great powers conflict. Uh, While still in government under the Trump administration, I was told explicitly that there are only four countries the U.S. cares about, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So as a senior intelligence officer focused on environmental and ecological change, this felt like a giant disconnect. The planet is being dramatically changed by anthropogenic forces, and dangerously so, uh, but we continue to be stuck in old paradigms. And in 2019, there were three important international scientific assessments released that should have shaken the national security community to its core if it were paying attention. And two of these were IPCC reports. One of the one was on the effects of uh, climate change on the cryosphere and the ocean, and the other on land and terrestrial systems, both alarming. But most important, I think, was the global assessment report issued by the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, ITBIS. This is the single most terrifying report I read while in government. And I spent a decade in the intelligence community. Um, it, It outlined that biodiversity and the ecosystem services they provide are declining faster than any time in human history. The drivers of change are accelerating. Um, species extinctions, population declines, mass mortality events, uh, et cetera. Now, if you think of natural and ecological systems as relevant only 
to pretty pictures on National Geographic or documentaries on Animal Planet, then this probably registers somewhere on the, oh, that's too bad meter. But if you understand the deep connectedness of the planet, which many of the listeners on this call undoubtedly do, you understand that the very support system for humanity is in jeopardy and pertinent to zoonotic disease. Uh, we know, for example, that high biodiversity inhibits the transmission of pathogens uh, through a variety of mechanisms. And so my argument then is that U.S. national security needs to be updated, recalibrated, if you will. Uh, the U.S. needs to reposition global ecological disruption. And this is a term I use as shorthand for the basket of Earth system stresses that includes climate change and land and sea use change and pollution and plastics, nitrogen and phosphorus imbalance, invasive species. These are terms uh, not normally found in typical uh, national security discussions. These need to be rerouted as core national security concerns. Presently, these issues are, at best, add-ons to, quote-unquote, real national security concerns. And so this recalibration should be reflected not only in terms of U.S. national security strategy, but in operations and resource allocations and personnel. There's a great need to bring more climate scientists, ecologists, veterinarians, epidemiologists, and the like, not just into government, but into the national security domain. My argument here is that if a national security institution is staffed only by officers, who see the world primarily through a geopolitical, geostrategic lens, they're unlikely to prioritize or even understand the dramatic changes occurring right under our feet. Now, as an officer in the intelligence community, I was asked to write on or speak to the national security implications of a variety of, of ecological and environmental issues, such as wildlife trafficking and biodiversity loss and illegal fishing. Uh, but you know, because our national security doctrine is outdated, this often required me tethering these uh, effects to terrorism, insurgency, political instability. I'm, I'm pretty skilled at doing so. And these are all important and interesting considerations, but shouldn't it have been enough to frame these risks uh, in terms of undercutting ecosystem health, the very support system for human life, or heightening the risk of zoonotic disease? These arguments currently don't get much traction, unfortunately. So science has long been a core component of national security, so we should appropriately resource scientific institutions to tackle these emergent national security issues. And so much science needs to be filled in. Uh, so just with respect to understanding the pathogen space of the human-animal-human-wildlife agriculture interface, uh, we know that surveillance is not enough. Simply cataloging viruses without understanding which are dangerous to humans is not enough. This kind of science needs a lot of support, uh, needs resources. We need to better understand how environmental stress, including climate change, affects geographic ranges and migration patterns of disease hosts and vectors. For, for example, how do deforestation and habitat change affect the movement of rodents and bat populations? Is this quantifiable? Can we put uh, these into a model? Well, we learned that the best national security strategy for the suppression of emergent zoonotic disease 
is right out of the old conservation playbook, preserve habitats. What does a climate-smart, ecologically-informed pandemic preparedness policy look like from a scientific perspective? What scientific gaps are there that we need to fill in? Uh, I think these are all really important parts uh, and questions that need to be answered, not just by the national security community, um, but also the scientific community. And I, um, I, I, I highly advocate for uh, increased discussions between these, these groups. And in the interest of time, I'll stop there, I think, and look forward to further discussion and questions. Thank you so much, Rod. We're going to go to Congresswoman Harmon for the first question. Jane, are you still on the line? Of course I am. This is fascinating. Okay, Thank great. you all. Thank you so much for uh, uh, educating all of us. Um, so I, this is mostly for Rod because he just scared me to death. Um, I was in Congress for nine terms. I was ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee in 2003 when the scariest report ever written came out. Uh, I never heard of it. We argued uh, then uh, to get climate change covered as a national security risk in intelligence assessments, and we were pretty successful there. But I don't recall, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, uh, conversation about pandemics. So my question is, uh, was Congress in the game? And if not, what did Jane do wrong? That's my first question. My second question, though, is to come back to something I mentioned in the intro, which is this issue of the bio lab nearby the wet market in Wuhan. And the reason I'm asking this again is because I think lots of people on this call are interested, and I have not found anywhere conclusive proof that either this was an intentional uh, bio attack or that somebody in the bio lab went, you know, shopping for, you know, his favorite bat for dinner or whatever he may have, he, she may have bought. Um, but how much credence do you give this? And if it, if, what would it take to fully investigate this claim? Thanks. I think, Rod, if you can take the first part of that question, yeah. and then we'll go to Ellen for the bio lab question. Well, I would say that, um, you know, the intelligence community in uh, pretty much every annual threat assessment to Congress, to the Senate um, Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee um, for the last, you know, dozen or so uh, documents, so years, have highlighted uh, pandemic uh, risk and in fact, the one in 2019, while I was still in government, said something to the effect that uh, the United States assesses that the world will remain vulnerable to the next large-scale outbreak of a contagious disease. Um, and you know, with, I don't have that in front of me, but it you know it talked about massive rates of death and, and harm and affecting the world economy and strain inter, international resources. Um, you know, these, the intelligence community, both in the unclassified space and also in the uh, classified space, have been issuing these warnings for quite some time. I do believe that um, there was a very recent um, document uh, produced by the intelligence community on pandemic preparedness as well. Thank you, Rod. Ellen, do you want to address the question about the biolabs? 
Sure. And if I may, I'd also like to address the Congresswoman's question about um, yeah, absolutely. Congress and, and sort of what Congress knew and didn't know. And I think that if you, ha- having um, served as a staff member, Ms. Harmon, on, on your committee, um, the Committee on Homeland Security, not Intelligence, you know, I think that there was a lot of awareness among the various committees for a long time about biological threats, you know, whether they came from a bad actor or from nature. I think, you know, it, it also appeared, for example, in reports from the DNI, the Worldwide Threat Assessment. So I don't think it's that Congress was unaware or unwilling to identify this as a, as a source of potential catastrophe, but I just think ultimately that the Congress's output in terms of its, um, its authorizations and particularly the funding levels didn't really match the threat. So there was ultimately, I think, a disconnect between what Congress was told and what Congress was willing to spend. We can certainly talk more about that if you're interested. Um, The other question about the origins of the virus, I think there's absolutely no evidence to indicate that this was in any way intentional. Um, Parsing and peeling apart whether this was um, an accident that, that resulted from the release from a lab or if it was a natural kind of, quote-unquote natural, still human-made ultimately, but a quote-unquote natural spillover event at a market, is going to be really challenging for, for a lot of reasons, one of which is that the marketing question is no longer there. It's since been torn down. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of genomic tools, these, these uh, molecular biology analytical tools, that virologists have at their disposal that maybe help help us be able to determine if this particular strain was being studied at the lab, that could provide some evidence. Um, but either way, I think we need to deal with the, the this knowledge that the risk can come either from nature or from laboratories. Thanks so much, Ellen and Sharon, or I'm sorry, Rod and Sharon, let me know if you wanna jump in with anything further. Um, otherwise, I think that we will go to our next question, which is coming from... I would love to add one, sure. one aside. This is Sharon. Um, I think it's also important to emphasize the fact that this research is really important and that, you know, obviously biosecurity and biosafety needs to be paramount. But I, I would hate to see some kind of backlash against this kinds of research. That's a great point. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Next, we're going to hear from Deborah Thompson, a AAAS Congressional Science and Engineering Policy Fellow at the American Veterinarian Medical Association. And Deborah, I hope you'll correct me if I got any of that wrong. Definitely right. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, Thanks, everybody, for speaking today. It's really important what you're saying. My question comes down to education and efforts. So what are the educational efforts that are happening right now in response to COVID-19? And I'm particularly interested in planetary health, one health education for both children and adults. Um, Has the Department of Education been involved at all? Are there nonprofits working towards this? Um, How can we promote health literacy and um, promote this important educational effort? Thank you. That's a great question. Does anybody want to jump in on that?
I, I mean, this is Ellen. I'm not sure that I'm the best person to answer that. I, I tend to track HHS more than I track the Department of Education. I, you know, I have been pleased at um, some of the messaging that I've been seeing coming out of media outlets like the History Channel and others that's directed toward um, toward young people. Some of it's, of course, directed at adults. I think this is a teachable moment where we're really learning a lot about where infections come from. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good moment to, um, to, for, for those of us who work in this space to take charge of so that the message doesn't get carried away with, you know, bats are bad or the Chinese are backwards for having these wet markets. Um, but really take the opportunity to educate about why animals are so good and so important and why um, it's actually human activity that causes all the problems. That's a great point, Ellen. I think um, as a mom of a kindergartner, I can tell my anecdotal evidence that um, there's definitely, I think, uh, a heightened awareness in the classroom today um, and a desire to make more of the connections with young students. I don't know that that, I'm doubtful that, that that's consistent across the country just based on how curriculum is developed. Um, but I think that, you know, between what we're experiencing today and and the the, um, the impact of climate change that, that the younger generations are much more aware um, and experiencing the, the you know, um, the outcomes of what happens when um, ecosystems and planetary health sort of collide. Um, we have another question coming in from Alex Long, who is a program associate with the Wilson Center's Science and Technology Innovation Program. Alex, over to you. Hi, everyone. Actually, um, Alex, sorry to interrupt you. Um, knowing Alex and his keen interest in planetary health, he might be, um, and One Health, he might be well positioned to answer that question, too. And Alex, you should feel free to jump in on that. Well, it's actually funny. I, I do know, Deborah, and um, I have been interested in how people are communicating this to a lot of different communities via education, like K through 12, but then also um, citizen science and uh, another that's another thing that STIP is very focused on and how during this time being able to use this as a, like a massive learning experience uh, I think there's a lot to be said about that um, so definitely something to dive into and a field that I'm really excited to talk more about um, but for my question I would say that I I'm really interested in how the government is going to react to uh, this crisis. And it's been brought up before, and I really think that anyone on this call is well um, able to answer the question, but can anyone speak to PREDICT's role in the space and this One Health understanding of global health, so the intersection of human, animal, and environmental health, and how far that gets us, but then also what is needed on top of that um, so basically, what is PREDICT's role? What have they done in the past? And then what is needed to actually um, make more progressive policy uh, moving forward? Thanks, Al. Uh, Alex, that's a great question. Does anybody want to jump in on that? I think, Sharon, you had mentioned PREDICT. Um, I know you don't necessarily focus too closely on USAID and your um, overall work, but do you have a response? 
Well, I can jump in here. This is Rod. Because I I actually referenced it. And and it'll just come from the scientific perspective. And, you know, I think the uh, PREDICT project is a really important uh, program because I think really better understanding the ecological, uh, you know, dimension of zoonotic disease uh, and spillover I think is really important. I'll just repeat something I said, uh, you know, in my, you know, intro remarks. Um, just cataloging viruses, uh, it, it, it probably gets us a leg up in the uh, understanding of the number of pathogens and, and, and how many different varieties exist, um, you know, in natural systems. But it seems to me that that's still not uh, sufficient to be able to discriminate harmless viruses from dangerous viruses. Um, And there needs to be more. And I know PREDICT has some elements of that uh, in the program as well. But I, I, you know, and others have have cautioned me on this as well, uh, that surveillance alone is not adequate. Thanks, Rod. Is, you know, I would just yeah. add that, that I agree with Rod that I think that um, sur- surveillance efforts at that interface are a critical piece, but they're one piece of a larger effort that needs to be made. Thanks, Ellen. I think, you know, we've worked closely with USAID for a number of years, and um, overall, I think there's been great strides in the agency's approach to development and the need for a transdisciplinary and cross-sectoral approach. Um, and actually, this might be a good place to plug a virtual series we're hosting in May with USAID's Bridge Project, which has been focused on integrating biodiver- biodiversity conservation into development initiatives like food security and health security um, uh, and governance. Um, the first event in that series will be on May 5th, so you should all tune in. Uh, our uh, next question comes from Kirk Caesar, who's a student at Georgetown. Kirk, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Great. Thank you. Yes, go ahead. Awesome. Thank oh, and actually, much. Kirk, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I keep forgetting to let people on the call know that you should dial star one if you want to get in line to ask a question. Uh, so apologies, Kirk. Go ahead. No worries. Thank you. So, yes, I'm a sophomore at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and I'm currently researching the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and threats of zoonotic diseases emerging there. And so I know that we've mentioned that zoonotic diseases are likely to spread when humans disrupt pristine environments. And given that oil drilling is now a possibility in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, my question is, what are the risks of a new infectious disease emerging in the Arctic as humans potentially go deeper and deeper into ANWR? That's a great question. Is uh, let's see, would anybody be keen to take a first stab at it? Rod, I don't know if you want to take that. I I will just answer on a generic level because I don't have um, specific expertise in in Anwar or up in up in the refuge area. But just because it's cold up there doesn't mean that there can't be an emerging infectious disease. I mean, typically we think of the the hot spots as being more along the equatorial belts of the planet, um, you know, the the hot parts of 
Africa, Asia, um, less so Latin America, but that's also a possibility. But that doesn't mean that emerging infections can't come from the more temperate areas. I gave the example of Lyme earlier. So I would, I would think that at, at a bare minimum, there should be a risk assessment of emerging infectious disease along with whatever other risk assessments should be required before um, drilling in that area. And uh, I'll just jump in here. Uh, I think it's a really good question. I think this is one of the things that science really needs to fill in. Uh, one of the things that we do know is that climate effects are uh, changing the um, the ranges of many species towards uh, towards the poles and, and up in elevation. And not all organisms are moving at the same rate. And so we're really looking... Um, at a pretty profound redistribution of, of life, um, you know, on the surface of the earth. And, you know, the timescale of that, I think, is still a big question mark. But, you know, as you also bring more people into the Arctic uh, for a variety of reasons, it is not an unreasonable hypothesis uh, to assert that you would have more chances for infectious disease um, uh, outbreaks. Thank you, Rod. Uh, I would just flag uh, on May 1st, we're going to host a ground truth briefing with our Polar Institute friends, um, highlighting some research of the transmission of COVID-19 into the narwhal population up in the Arctic, um, as well as concerns about um, the spread of the disease to the mountain gorillas in Uganda. So, you know, this is a Conversation, I think, is only going to get bigger in the months ahead. Uh, for our next question, we're going to go to Bernadette Dunham, who's a professor at George Washington University. Bernadette, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Great. Go over to you. Thank you very much. I just want to thank all three of you for an excellent, excellent presentation this afternoon. How appropriate and much needed. My question is a um, combination of a comment. You're all exemplifying beautifully One Health and the interconnectedness that we understand for human health, animal health, and the environment. How can we do a better job of helping our members of Congress in particular understand the importance of this because they're still working in their silos and they're not able to truthfully reach across and work together on issues like we're experiencing right now with the pandemic when we have to work together so much more? One, in sharing the cost to taking advantage of an incredible multidisciplinary approach to these issues, but raising that educational awareness, which they need, and then it gets back to the public in general. And I'm glad this is going to be recorded, but do you have any other suggestions for how we might make a difference in helping them to embrace, truthfully, this One Health approach? Thank you. Ellen, why not Thank you, Bernadette. Ellen, why don't you take that one first? Sorry, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> Ellen, are you on the line? I know she had to drop off right before three, so she might have had to leave us. Rod, do you want to take the question? Sure. Um, and I'll just do it from a really narrow perspective, but one of the things that typically brings together uh, disparate members of uh, Congress and the public are national security concerns. And, you know, uh, 
as I mentioned, there were times when I would uh, prepare intelligence uh, briefings and unclassified included um, on a variety of topics. And sometimes I would uh, mention things like zoonotic disease potential. And I think that was largely an abstract idea. It was far enough away from SARS and MERS, didn't uh, really rattle the cages too much. But you know, this is a historic event, and this is, a cha- this is, this is changing uh, the United States. And so I think if this isn't a, a call to action, if this isn't a slap in the face, uh, that can arise us out of, uh, you know, some kind of stupor, I don't know what would be. And so this is one of the reasons why I am uh, encouraging and, and really calling on the national security community uh, to really rethink what it means for things to be uh, national security concerns um, to really get ahead of the, the risks and threats that we're, uh, for example, seeing right now and we can see coming down the road. Thanks, Rod. We have uh, one more question that I'd like to get to. Um, and Sharon, I'm sorry, if you want, did you, did you want to chime in on that question? Okay, I'll take that as a no. Uh, let's go to Kathy Florsheim as a freelance photographer and writer. Sorry, Kathy, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. Thank you. Uh, is the emergence of new disease, zoonotic or otherwise, part of an in- environmental impact statement? And if not, how could we make it so? That's a great question. Rod, do you know the answer to that? I, I don't know the answer not. to that because uh, yeah. I think it's a fabulous question. My gut feeling is that it is not uh, one that, that is typical, but I don't really know the answer to that. No, I think that an environmental impact statement is probably another area where there needs to be better integration of issues across sort of uh, animal environment and human health. And uh, as it stands, it's more about focusing on the environment. Great question, though. Uh, It looks like we are coming to the end of the hour, and it went very quick. I want to thank Sharon and Ellen and Rod for sharing their expertise with us today and to all of you on the call. Thank you for tuning in thank and for you. sharing your questions. If you joined late or want to go back and hear some of the highlights again, a recording of today's Ground Truth Briefing will be available on the Wilson Center website. Uh, we look forward to hosting you all again soon. In the meantime, take good care and stay safe. And thanks again, Sharon and Rod. Thank you. This concludes your conference call and you may disconnect. Once again, your conference call has ended and you may disconnect. Thank you for joining.